What's up, guys? Liat here. I just wanted to drop some info your way. Are you studying for the BCBA exam, BCABA exam, and wondering how the hell you're going to fit it into your schedule? Well, don't worry. We've got you. We have our collective that covers all the material you need to know for the exam. We break down your studying for you and go over every single item on the task list in real behavior pitches fashion, real raw and relatable way. Now you're wondering, oh, I think it already started, I heard about. Well, don't worry, we have recorded options for you to match your hustle. If you don't have time to meet us on those nights, that's cool too. You could play the videos whenever you want. We have a one month option, a two month option, or a four month option. Go check us out at studynotesaba.com. Study notes, ABA. ABA and a little X rated away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. And oh my gosh, we are on episode 69. Casey, you have a great opportunity right now. What are you going to tell us as your rhyme for 69? 69, don't need no rhyme. Nuff said, baby. 69 is an amazing number. And we only get here once. So we really are celebrating it. And we're celebrating in a big way because we have an amazing guest today. I'm super pumped. Um, the guest we have today, I'm going to give a little foreplay to make it a little exciting because I have come across or I've heard about this person. Um, it's come up multiple times in different situations. Um, Maggie has told us about this guest. Um, he specializes in something very cool that I don't think we hear as much in our field of ABA, which I think we should And this guest is very cool. And I really enjoyed our conversation, our pre-interview before the show. All right, guys, you know, we love to read a review of the day. I love when you guys reach out after and let me know that you heard it. It reinforces my behavior of reading these. So here we go. Today is from Terry S-A-M-C-1313. Amazing podcast, five stars. You guys literally are the best. You relate so much to life and talk about things people would ever never talk about. More people relate to you than you know. And as someone studying for their BCBA, it is so relatable and so much easier to understand concepts with your podcast. So thank you. No, thank you for that review. And we just always want to make sure that we are relatable. So if we're ever not relatable, let us know. (laughs) But this episode, I think we're going to be really relatable. Oh, definitely. This one will be very relatable and let's get into it. So without further ado, Casey, who is our guest? All right. Our guest today is Nicholas Mayo Ither. He is a LVA and a BCBA. He's both a sex therapist and sexual behavior analyst. He works with clients of all different backgrounds, sexualities, genders, and relationship dynamics. Clients come to him to work on sexual and or socio-sexual concerns, including low desire, lack of partnership skills, poor impulsivity control, coming out, inner shame, exploring new dynamics and or kinks, and also for vaginal pain and erectile dysfunction. That's a fucking lot. 
I think it's vaginal. What did I say? Vaginal. <laughs> Yola, keep it in. Keep <laughs> it in. All right. He runs Empowered, a center for sexuality in St. Louis, where he enjoys working with a variety of humans. Um, and he's worked extensively with the following populations. Um, and note that many of these may intersect. Um, LGBTQIA+, ABDL, autism, poly, heterosexual, and HIV+. So um, he's also one of the only Beaver analysts who have completed a 300-hour supervised practicum in sex therapy. Sex therapy. I am so flustered from this episode already. I cannot even speak. So uncomfortable. No, I think you meant HIV positive. <laughs> what did I say? Plus. <laughs> This is a good intro. You I guys, like intro, intro done. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, you are welcome. That was a lovely introduction. It really was. That, that's being kind, but thank you. <laughs> no, it's perfect. We get all like the the weird, like we can't say shit out in the beginning, so we can be comfortable this entire episode. It's perfect. That's true. Yeah, words like penis, vagina, they kind of just roll off my tongue, um, but definitely can be trickier for others. Like what about vagina? vagina what about <laughs> vagina all? Vaginal? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yolo. Well, we're so excited to have you. I know Liat has done um, some, you know, pre talks with you. I was able to hop on a little bit of it, and I was like, "Wow, this is so interesting." What you do. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm always glad to kind of get out there and tell people what I do because ABA is just so much more than what a lot of people think it can be. That is true. Very, very true. So before we go into it today, I got a little feedback that someone doesn't like these behavioral principles I do in a robot voice, but hey, I'm still doing it. Didn't punish my behavior. Here we go. The behavioral principles we will cover today are four functions of behavior, reinforcement, punishment, but is it punishment? Behavior skills training, socially significant goals, pairing, responded and operant behavior. And I know there's going to be five million more, but I just like to give an idea of some things we might cover. So, all right, Nicholas, tell us if someone asks you, if you're sitting next to someone on a plane and they say, what do you do? which on a plane, you probably like just make it easy because you don't feel like talking so much. Sometimes you got to stop. What would you say that you do? Um, so when I travel, I like to travel wearing my sex geek shirt, um, especially like if I'm going to be up in first class, then I want to make sure I have like a sex geek shirt on because it really, you know, it, it, it drives a conversation. Um, but I like to uh, I like to have that conversation with people and just tell them like, what do I do? I, I am a scientist of sexual behavior, um, which means that in a lot of ways, uh, my science intersects with many aspects of being an adult. Um, so I just tell people uh, I'm a sexual behavior analyst um, and a sex therapist, kind of like in my intro. Uh, but I like to always point out to people um, kind of why ABA is a cool framework for sexuality. Uh, because it's definitely not something most people think. Most people think of ABA and they immediately put us into a very specific little box. Of DTT. <laughs> right? Uh, DTT specifically for children with autism. And that's like what we're thought of as, as being our kind of one trick, right? We're the one trick ponies of the therapy world in the minds of everyone else. Uh, so a lot of work to be done on our end. 
Which is really interesting because, you know, if you think about it, we talk about our unconditioned reinforcers such as food, water, oxygen, sleep. Sex is one of those things. And so it just seems that it is so hush hush and we're forgetting about even if even if we're just talking right now about individuals with autism, even though this goes far beyond that, like this still is an unconditioned reinforcer and, you know, essentially one of which oftentimes called, you know, one of the basic human needs. Yes, I would definitely say it's a human need. Um, I go so far as to say it's a human right. Um, at the same time, uh, it's a very interesting uh, uh, aspect of behavior because it does come from um, a very natural MO, but at the same time, uh, systemic shaping does occur um, and can impact how we uh, express ourselves sexually, um, what we expect from others sexually, uh, how we process our own uh, uh, identities. Uh, for instance, one of the coolest experiences I've ever heard, um, definitely uh, unusual, was in Kate Bornstein's book, uh, Gender Outlaw. So uh, Kate was born uh, assigned male at birth grew up in this small town, didn't know what gay was, didn't know what trans was, but knew that they were attracted to men. Uh, got into college, found out what gay was. Oh, that must be what I am. So started dating men, fell in love, got married, found out what trans was, recognized, oh my gosh, that's what I am. So then I'm a straight woman, not a gay man. And then what does that mean in my gay relationship with my husband? And so then they had to work through that, ended up in a straight relationship as she transitioned. But then uh, her husband ended up realizing, watching the transitional process and being exposed to kind of different thoughts and different um, viewpoints, that trans was actually uh, more fitting for their own identity. So now they're in a lesbian relationship together. Wow. So it, it, it shifted like three different times. Or yeah. more, maybe. Uh, there's there uh, there are definitely a, a lot of advocates out there uh, who advocate that you know sexuality is fluid. Um, mm -hmm. and it's not really it's not a choice. It's not mm -hmm. something that people are like you know this is what I want to identify as. This is uh, what I want to be. Um, but at the same time, we have to wonder to what degree are we choosing to close ourselves off into the constructs that we do initially identify with. For instance, like um, as, uh, as a gay man, um, if I find myself uh, attracted to a woman, do I tell myself, oh no, I just think that she's really pretty or I just like some of those aspects because I'm gay? Or do I go, it's okay, I'm allowed to be attracted to a woman and still identify as gay? Um, or do I go, oh, if I'm attracted to a woman, then do I identify as gay? Maybe I'm bisexual. I don't know where I'm at. And it's okay either way because it's all going to be rooted in how we perceive sexuality. It's a really unique thing. Um, I like to go into it and say, you know, unless you're uh, engaging in, in the two big no-nos, you're normal. Um, and the two big no-nos are children and animals. Uh, uh, you know, it, as long as you're respecting consent, whatever. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm at. YOLO. Well, I mean, this is so. Do you think labels or tax, like tacting, essentially, like I am gay, I am 
you know, I am bisexual, these different things. Do you think that they are more harmful or you think they help us identify just for, let's say like dating, let's say you're on an app, maybe it helps that you are able to, like for me personally, if I saw girls on there, I don't think I'd be interested, right? So like it helps me identify of like who I was going to swipe through. Okay, yeah. Or which app to get on in the first place, right? Uh, <laughs> um, I think that labels, uh, texts, um, are a very uh, double-edged sword when it comes mm-hmm. to sexuality. Um, as you said, they can help us to kind of subset ourselves so that we can find similar partners, similar-minded partners. Um, but at the same time, uh, labels can be very harmful um, if we, again, look at the trans identities. Um, and you mis you misgender somebody who's who's trans that can actually cause some trauma to regenerate. Right. Um, so it's a really interesting thing where um, we also look at you know the the labels of the expanded um, LGBTQIA plus. Can you tell me what all of those mean? Sure. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, intersex. Sorry, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. The plus. Uh, also stands for aromantic, demisexual, demiromantic, um, and pansexual. And then I'm sure that there are other ones that I'm not grabbing, but probably could. Does that kind of fit the plus, like the other ones? Yeah, the plus plus just kind of goes forward. And one thing to recognize about that is that I think the labels have served and harmed the community. So the, the point in, in, giving everyone their own sort of tack, their own, their own label within the umbrella was so that no one would get forgotten or left behind. Right. Um, but what I think it has done to, uh, to mainstream kind of uh, the heteronormative society looking in sees, okay, this was this group of people who said that they were all coming together, but now they're all labeling themselves different. So to a lot of people, um, they kind of use that against the community as a way of saying that we're not actually united, that we're not actually working together. Um, and it's an interesting thing. Uh, well, can it be like kind of like different stimulus classes? Like one thing is like, okay, this is uh, hetero, heterosexual. And then, you know, you could say, okay, these are not heterosexual necessarily, but then you could further break them down into just kind of to, but what I also was thinking when you said about that one book, what did you say it was called? Gender Outlaw. So maybe, for example, this individual who grew up in a small country town, like them even hearing about just that there are these other labels or tag might have been beneficial just for like a gateway to, to identify as, oh, wait, so it's not necessarily wrong what I'm feeling, right? It's just another way to kind of just open someone's eyes and then you could like learn further about where you, I mean, I don't even know if you necessarily like need to label it from there, but just understanding that like, that's one way you could go too, like, right. Like you could, you could, you know, turn left or you could turn right. But this is just like explaining to you kind of that what you're feeling is not necessarily wrong. Yeah. No, I I agree with you 100%. And I, I think that it's a very valid point that um, words are, uh, in general, are going to be a double-ended uh, or a double-sided sword. Uh, so, Ain't that the truth? 
So, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, even in my own life, uh, I didn't know what gay was. My parents knew from a very early age that I was going to grow up to be gay. So they like, they hid gay from me. I had no idea what gay was. Um, so I, I didn't know to identify as gay. Um, I didn't know to, to uh, identify or, or how to handle what I was thinking or feeling. Um, and so not knowing how to handle what I was thinking or feeling was really confusing. Um, finding out what gay was was like this just oh moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not absolutely crazy. Um, so that was definitely, you know, um, an empowering moment. Um, when we look at, uh, you know, the case of like Kate Bornstein from Gender Outlaw, um, until she had a, a word, she couldn't build upon that. So if we look at like relational frames uh, and and putting together a, you know, a, a response class, like you can't have a response class if you don't know that class exists. Uh, right. You can't frame your way through things if you don't have aspects upon which to build those frames you have to have something and so language is very helpful when it comes to uh to sexuality um and that's another really interesting thing is that language evolves right and as language is evolving so is our understanding of sexuality mm -hmm. um and so uh a lot of the um the sexualities the genders um the preferences that that we're seeing more upfront now um, we're seeing them more up front because we have more language and more understanding of them, but they've always been around. Um, you know, it's just such an interesting thing where we have like these different labels for things. Um, and sometimes the labels themselves build up additional relational frames through uh, societal and systemic uh, punishment and reinforcement um, shaping of behavior. So for instance, the term bisexual, um, Bisexual is a very valid identity, and there are a lot of people out there who identify as bisexual. Um, but there are a whole lot of people out there who look down on bisexuality uh, because of the stigma that has been placed around uh, bisexuality. And that's not just talking about straight people looking in at the LGBTQIA umbrella and saying, oh, the bisexual people. Uh, it's even within the LGBTQIA umbrella because we're all shaped by these systems. Um, and so we grow up hearing this stereotype that like bisexual people are greedy or we hear the stereotype that bisexual people just can't make up their minds, which really invalidates them as people. Um, and what we have to recognize, and I didn't know this until I started getting into LGBTQIA marriage and family therapy, because um, I'm in my practicum right now for that. Um, but Bisexual people have to come out in every relationship they're in because their sexuality gets assumed. So if they date a man, they have to tell the man, I'm bisexual and I also like women. If they date a woman, they have to tell the woman, I'm bisexual and I also like men. Which means that they have to go through the coming out process throughout their lives. And they have to risk being dumped over stereotypes and fears that they're going to leave sucks. Them, Right? So, so language and, and stereotypes have really, really harmed uh, the bisexual identity. And then another thing that's really interesting, Savin Williams in 2004 and then again uh, 2014 um, did this amazing study uh, where, um, and he published um, his books called The New Gay Teenager um, and uh, an article, um, The uh, Mostly Straight Kids Are All Right. Um, <laughs> and so... 
<laughs> I see you already processing. I was like, I was going through it. I mean, to be honest, like there are certain things that you kind of have to like wrap your brain to think about. Like even the other day, and I don't want to cut you off what you were saying. I know like I asked you how you met your husband or your partner, partner. And then I like, I remember you responding with they, but the context of the conversation was like, you were in this bar. So I didn't know if like in that situation, like it was like, there was multiple like people there. So it's just like, kind of like this learning curve that like we like learn this language and how to use it just because so many things have been shaped within our brain for so long. Like, okay, like plural means multiple people, you know, or like to just learning. Okay, I've got some big stuff to say about they, them. Um, I want to, I want to, um, real quick. Finish, go back to that book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Back real quick to bisexual. So, so what's really, really interesting. And, and I think that this is important for anybody who's going to be working with humans to recognize that this actually occurred. So they sent out a study survey to students in all 50 states. Um, it was a long survey, but they really only cared about two main questions, <laughs> right? The whole rest were fillers. Um, okay. So what they were really looking for was do you identify as uh, you know uh, and then they gave them options uh, are you uh, straight bisexual uh, gay lesbian um, and so you know overwhelmingly people opted for straight and then the next one was gay lesbian and then very very few chose bisexual they took um uh, then I can't remember what the other question was, but the other question was something along the lines of like, what label would you give yourself? Um, so, and again, it was very, you know, like straight, gay, almost nobody replied back bisexual. They did see a rise, um, in that one of pansexual. And that was one of the first studies to have the term. I get confused by that. Can yeah. you, can you operationally define that for me real quick? Yes, a uh, pansexual individual is somebody who is uh, engaged in persons of all uh, genders and sexes. Uh, they, they're uh, attracted um, not to everyone, right? They're not selfish. They're not uh, not picky at all. They're not like running around like, ooh, you know, I'm going to date. You love the individual? Uh, like for. So that's, that's part of a slogan, but that slogan does kind of, I don't know, that slogan, does, again, a double-edged sword, words are words. Um, so the slogan, hearts, not parts, for the pansexual uh, group, you know, they're saying that we can find love regardless of the person's body. And I do 100% think that that is at the heart of, um, of panromantic, but pansexual and pan-romantic are different. And we have to recognize that people have a sexual orientation, a romantic orientation, and an erotic orientation. Uh, so when you have these three different orientations, sometimes they don't all overlap. Um, they don't overlap the same. Uh, for instance, uh, you could be uh, uh, heterosexual, uh, sorry, heteroromantic, so you only date somebody of the opposite gender. Um, but maybe you're pansexual and you're able to find um, sexual attraction in people of various genders. Um, and then maybe your erotic attraction is kink. And so uh, whenever- I want to get to that. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> you're going for kink. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, when they sent out the second copy of this survey, they had changed things up a bit. And instead of giving them options to circle, 
they gave them a spectrum. And the spectrum was 100% straight, 100% gay, big line, plop an X where you are in between. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, I, can't, I don't have the statistic on me, <clears throat> but overwhelmingly, people did not choose gay or straight. Almost everyone was somewhere in the middle, leaning oftentimes towards what they ended up defining as mostly straight, then leaning towards mostly gay. Uh, those were the highest. But if we were to take out labels um, and, and really look at the classic definition of bisexual, then technically, so many people are falling into this bisexual category, but would never use that word to describe themselves. And why? Because that word has become a dirty word. It's become a word that society has kind of shaped into being a dirty word. Um, and that's a crazy thing because, again, bisexuals are looked down upon by the bulk of society. But when we look at the bulk of society, they're likely bisexual. I didn't know that they were looked down. I didn't know that they were looked down. They face a lot of stigma. A lot of stigma. And it's not fair. They're, and they're you said the selfish thing? Like, what does that mean? They're more what is, uh, normal. <laughs> more normalized. Why are more. people calling them selfish? Because they get both. A lot of it comes from insecurity and not understanding. So uh, anytime we don't understand someone's sexuality, uh, you know, just like when we don't understand anything, we're going to try and put it into some sort of box that we can make sense of, right? We want to have that ability to um, to put a stimulus into a category that we can have expectations around. Um, and so for somebody who does not uh, experience bisexual attraction, or maybe because they identify with a label of heterosexual or homosexual, when they do experience bisexual attraction, they dismiss it. Um, so since they're, they're not uh, kind of connecting that in themselves or don't have that in themselves either or um, because they're not able to understand then what happens when we're confused what is the next emotion we tend to move to nobody likes being confused we move to being angry we move to being judgmental we move to shutting it down something's wrong with the other person um, right they confused us um, so that's something that i think is really interesting and and goes into the they them Right. Because as people are. Oh, I like out, how you led this all full circle. Like, <laughs> OK, so as people come out and they say, you know, I want to use they them pronouns. Other people are like, you're asking me to change my language. That is so selfish. I can't believe that you want everybody to change, change the way that they talk just for you. This is what I hear all the time. I hear this all the time. Um, and it cracks me up because uh, we all, everyone has used they them for single. For, for a singular person, we've all done it when we don't know the person's gender. When we don't know who we're talking about more specifically, we say they. And we have no problem with it. But when we see someone and our eyes tell us the person's gender, we have a really hard time saying they for them. And that is crazy to me that we have no problem doing it when we don't know a person's gender. But when we assume a gender, we have a really hard time with that's that. really interesting. Right. So like for me, it's, it's, it's really fascinating because for me, it's not that I mind like saying, you know, they, but for me, it actually takes concerted effort mm -hmm. for me to 
change my language just because of the, like, I guess you see someone and, and you know, it's like, oh, okay. Like this is, I don't know. Forgive me. Maybe I was like, oh wait, like he's like, Nicholas is like openly gay. So um, immediately in my head, it was like, oh, like this is like your husband, like cause of these labels. Right. And so it took me being like, you know, again, it's not because I don't want to say it, but like mentally flexible in my language to actually, and I think it's probably a good practice to really think about what you're saying for things, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, in general, because I I just think we're so quick to stick to like how we're used to doing things or, and, and lacking this flexibility or training loosely in, in terms of understanding a concept. Right, we need to have flexible frames. Um, so, when we look at the the they them, um, why does it make us uncomfortable when we already know who we're talking about, or or we already know their their gender? Well, a big part is that when we're using they them and we don't know somebody's gender, or like you know, um, or we don't know really who we're talking about, we're trying to find answers. Right, they them tends to be part of a journey towards getting to a he she in terms of the pronouns that we're using historically. That's interesting. The other thing is that they, them is also used uh, when we're hiding something. So if I'm dating somebody and I don't want anybody to know anything about who I'm dating. I'm oh, like, you'd be like, they're really cool. They are, they are really cool. Yes. That's interesting. I, and, I didn't think of it. And that's still describing one person when you say they and are. Still describing one person. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And we do that. But when we're doing that, we're being sneaky. So in an interesting way, we have correlated it with we either need to go further and find more information or we're being sneaky. And because of those two things, it's really hard for us to frame in they for an individual without, uh, without it just feeling comfortable right off the bat. And then because it makes people uncomfortable, then they get mad at the person who wants to be identified as they, them which is so not fair because really the discomfort is completely on the other person. <laughs> that, that makes it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense, especially, I mean, because I remember like thinking when you like said this, that you, I was more, I probably was like, I was trying to get more information because you had said you were in like a public place, like a bar. And so for me, you were at a show or something and mm-hmm. you were like, and then like, they like ended up staying at my apartment or something. I think you said, so I was like, Oh, who, who, who are they? You know, like, like the, the group of performers or this or that, because my brain immediately was like, you're manding so, for more information. Yeah. And I mean, like it, it wasn't intentionally to be rude at all, but I was just like, my brain was immediately trying to categorize something so that I understand the context. But and so I just thought it was like really interesting, like in that moment, like kind of like, identifying what my brain was doing to try create this flexibility in my speaking. Yeah. So it's, it's so crazy because uh, words act as discriminative stimuli. And then so, uh, so does, you know, the visual stimulus, right? We see somebody um, or we hear a uh, context of, you know, a gay bar. Um, so we're, we're taking in this information and it is immediately processing and generating um, different behaviors from us in terms of of how we then are going to approach the situation with our next comment or how we're understanding what the other person is saying. Um, 
Something that I absolutely love is the concept of difference. Um, the idea that um, two people can be talking about the exact same thing and have absolutely no clue, uh, or they could be using the same word and mean two completely different things. Um, one of the best examples of this uh, came from one of my textbooks, um, uh, Mastering Competencies in Marriage and Family Therapy um, by Gahart, uh, 2014. Uh, she used this great example of the, uh, the, the, the gay man and the closet salesman. Um, so in this example, it's just beautiful. So a gay man uh, has, has been closeted. He's had a horrible upbringing. It's been really, really hard for him. He's finally coming out to his best friend. It's the first time he's really come out. He's taking this leap. He's taking this step. It's very hard for him, and he's very scared. He tells her, and then they start getting into this really deep conversation. He's feeling validated for the first time. Um, but they have this conversation at a cafe, and she gets recognized by one of her other friends who happens to be a closet, a closet organizer and really <laughs> loves what he does. And so he starts to come over and he hears them talking about how horrible the closet must have been and, you know, how we would never go back into that closet and screw closets. Closets are done. And so he comes over and he's just like, hey, how's it going? I heard that your closet was bad and I want to help you get back into it. I want to make sure that your closet is the best place you can be and that you want to stay in the closet forever. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> so now you have So he's like, we need to recondo that place. Like we need to recondo and get you the fuck back in there. Right. But but interestingly enough, they're having two completely separate conversations. But right now, both people think that the other person means the other thing. And you can have a huge argument. You could have trauma generated. This could be a huge situation. All because uh people are just trying to do right by each other and communicate. <laughs> Wow, that's a, I'm so interesting. Okay, so what does your, I know that I'm going from one thing to another, but what does your typical clientele or individuals you work with, or what does your day-to-day -day look like with what you do, right? So I think, and I, I also want to ask this because one of the most common questions we get because people are doing test prep with us is like, what else can I do with ABA? aside from necessarily autism, you know, like, and I do think that we are at the place where we kind of have to pave these mm -hmm. different areas because there's not necessarily these, you know, domains made to talk about or where to get supervision for it. So I just kind of want to know like what you do, how did you get into this realm and what does your day look like? Okay. Um, which of those should I start with? <laughs> those are three big questions. Okay, how did you get into this, uh, this number uh, one? Uh, 2003, I was trained by the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network um, at the uh, National Youth Leadership Summit for um, Sexuality Education and the onset of what became the Gay Straight Alliance Program for high schools. Um, I was the state ambassador for Alaska and Hawaii and opened up all of the Gay Straight Alliances uh, in Anchorage, um, Fairbanks, and uh, in Oahu. Um, basically uh, made sure that there was uh, comprehensive sexuality education, um, that there were dental dams, that there were condoms, that, uh, that there was a lot of different things that queer kids needed and were not getting. 
Um, in addition to that, recognizing that it was a gay straight alliance, we were also um, being very comprehensive. And so there was also stuff in there about baby making and about, you know, how to uh, prevent having a baby if you didn't want one and how to take care of a baby if you did want one. Uh, so uh, we made sure to really be um, comprehensive with it. And that comprehensive philosophy has followed me through. Um, it's not sex ed unless it covers everything. And, you know, uh, looking at, at ABA for autism, uh, if you're going to be a behavior analyst and you want to work with autism and you're not LGBTQIA competent, then you can't work with autism. That is my very, very firm belief because there are more and more studies coming out that are showing that the bulk of people, up to 70% of people on the spectrum, identify as LGBTQIA as adults. That means that it is abnormal for somebody on the spectrum to identify as straight and to go through and start normalizing hetero, heteronormativity and teaching that, you know, as a, as a little boy, you're supposed to wear this. And as a little girl, you're supposed to wear this. Right off the bat, you're assuming their gender. Um, and so by teaching those things, like, you know, I was, um, I was running a, gosh, I want to say it was an Ables back in the day. Um, and it had, you know, four, uh, for boys, can they do this? For girls, can they do this? And for like for girls, it was that they could, you know, uh, pull up a skirt and zip the back. For boys, it was that they could pull up pants and button the front. And I was like, what? I was like, this is so stupid. I'm going to teach this kid both things and see which one they want. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to mark it against them if they want the thing that it says that, you know, if they want that, that there's something wrong with them that has to do with autism. No, they just want to wear the freaking skirt. Like, you know? like instead of putting our own um, biases into it, let them give them all options and go yeah, for it. See what they go for. I mean, because who's it going to hurt? Um, you know, oh, oh, no, they're wearing a skirt. Um, so it's it's something that could empower them and make them feel very good moving forward. Um, when we look at, at people with any sort of intellectual disability, but certainly autism, um, feeling very isolated, not having access to community, not having access to sexual opportunities, uh, not having uh, sex ed in general, oftentimes. If we promote uh, the idea of heteronormativity from an early stance uh, or from an early uh, onset, then what we're doing is we're shaping this idea that there's something wrong with them otherwise. Um, and that's really, if we're going to be in there as, as mental and behavioral health professionals, we should not be making them feel like there's something wrong with them. Um, one of the things that I actually do in parent trainings right off the bat is LGBTQIA competency because the likelihood is your kid's going to be LGBTQIA, which parents do not like hearing a lot of the time. But if they want to work with me, they're going to have to hear that. And we're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> that's just so that's you as that. your um, as a behavior analyst, right? So you're absolutely. How do you separate or do you not separate your sex therapy from? Um, oh, I separate them a lot. Um, you do. Okay. Yes. So, uh, so sex therapy is a, is a more intensive um, psychotherapy. Uh, there's uh there's also uh, many different modalities that can be utilized. Um, uh, ABA is, the way that I look at ABA is, ABA is easier to bring into another field than another field is to bring into ABA. So I bring behavior analytic principles into my sex therapy practice. Uh, but I can't take sex therapy, like we're not gonna do, um, you know, some in-depth work on, uh, on clitoral stimulation in my 
ABA practice. I also don't know any insurance that's going to pay for that. Uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs> uh, but I can go in my sex therapy practice and have them taking uh, data on how frequently they engaged in this. Um, how frequently did it result in an orgasm? Uh, if uh, if it resulted in an orgasm, uh, you know, how much uh, uh, weight, and this is using more of a Likert scale than a behavioral thing, but how much weight did you put on the orgasm leading up to it? Uh, was it your goal? Uh, mm-hmm. So like kind of looking into- Like a magnitude. Things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, um, you know, what is the function of your sex? Is the mm-hmm. function of your sex to have an orgasm? Because if that is the function of your sex, well, then go take care of yourself in the bathroom. Uh, if the function of your sex is to have an intimate moment with yourself or with a partner, then have an intimate moment, whatever that means. Mine uh, right now is a baby, so it's a access. It's a tangible right now. Okay, that's all it is. It's timed intercourse. <laughs> uh, so what I like to do is I like to retrain the definition of sex because people have this idea that sex is it, it's a process that's going to you know start this way and it's going to end this way. Um, if it doesn't follow that script, then it ends in misery or it was unsuccessful. I hear people say, oh, I had bad sex um, or, you know, uh, the sex was ruined because it, I didn't get my partner to orgasm. Uh, and I'm like, man, that's that's very goal focused. Uh, you have a very, very rigid box about what sex is. Uh, what if sex is a journey? Period. A connection, if, right? Right. What if sex is uh, whatever the hell happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, we went through it together. Um, what if sex is, I'm going to play with myself and whatever I do, I'm going to do it as long as I'm not, you know, uncomfortable with it. Uh, whether it leads to an orgasm or not, I just spent some intimate time with myself and that's awesome. Um, so removing goals is, is really important, I think, in sexual dysfunction in general. But yeah, um, I do have to separate my ABA and my sex therapy. Um, I am always very, very upfront with my clients about that too. Like you're an ABA client or you're a sex therapy client. If you're a sex therapy client, I'm going to work in some behavior analytic principles. We're going to have you tracking some data. Uh, the school of solution focused brief therapy uh, from marriage and family therapy is really, in my opinion, the closest to ABA. It relies on um, Skinnerian principles, behavior uh, shaping, uh, operationally defining behavior, behavior tracking. Uh, they do all of that in solution focused brief therapy, but also have the ability to do in depth um, psycho, uh, not psychoanalysis, sorry, <laughs> psychotherapy. Um, and so I like to take those behavior analytic principles, move them over into a solution-focused brief therapy framework and get my clients really going. And one thing that's really cool in my sex therapy practice is that because I've been doing it that, that way, uh, even just yesterday I had a, a sex therapist who checked in with me and um, I told her, uh, she was asking me how, uh, like how many sessions um, my average clients have. And I was like, well, uh, you know, on average, 12 to 16, so I'd say 14 total. You know, they're done in three months, maybe three and a half, and then they don't come back for therapy. Their, their needs are met uh, most of the time, not always. Um, and she was like, don't tell the other sex therapists that, like, <laughs> because, because you're getting people knocked out way faster than most people can. You're putting yourself out of a job. <laughs> right, yeah. 
Um, yeah. But I was like, you know, uh, as a as a behavior analyst, it's our job to help people get to their goals very quickly um, and uh, and in ways that really build upon their own strengths. And solution focused brief therapy, insect therapy, has that same kind of a focus. It's here moving forward, recognizing that the past did shape you, um, not let's go diving deep while you lay down on the couch and let's find out what happened to you when you were three. Um, I don't do that type of therapy, even in my sex therapy. I was going to say, I don't, I don't think you would have gotten your BCBA if you were doing that, mainly that type of therapy. <laughs> no, no hate to that therapy, but I just feel like the two things that you have going, right, the marriage family therapy um, and the ABA. And it, am I right? Do I see behind your head your BACB certificate hanging on the wall? Yes. And then right above that is a beautiful penis. <laughs> I love it. Like, and that's what I told him last time. I was like, oh, like. That's like, oh, you just have it like, like stapled to your wall, like your certificate. He's like, yeah, but then I have a framed rainbow dick ahead of, on top of it. And I was like, I like that. You can see where I put my priorities. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm proud of my BACB, um, but I'm, I'm more proud of donated art. Um, that was a donated art piece. I thought it's really beautiful. Um, so I would say. Some of the things that are really kind of just common in, in my day and in my practice, um, you know, one of the first things that I do is uh, in the morning while I'm having my coffee, I'm looking at the Journal of Sex Research. I'm looking at, uh, you know, the, the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy. I'm looking at Java. I'm looking at a bunch of different things from a bunch of different fields. Um, I'm going on to the ACBS uh, website and looking and seeing if there's any new good act literature. Um, so I'm always, I like to start my day with some good research. Um, I go in and I check on the um, ABAI, Sexual Research and Practice Special Interest Group page on Facebook um, and just see if there's anything being posted there, anything new. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, I like that community and it's blowing up. We've got, I think, like close to 300 people in that group right now. Um, and so uh, that kind of gets the day started, um, get a little mission going or whatever, but then um, go into work. Uh, and I work uh, currently have cases, um, people with intellectual disabilities, people with autism, people who are neurotypical. I'm doing individuals, uh, couples. I've got, uh, I've got a, a poly uh, dynamic where they also have kids on the spectrum. Um, and so we're doing a whole whole big well-rounded thing there um i work that's with, cool um some adult babies and diaper lovers um i have uh, a couple people that um, i'm helping them explore uh gender um uh and then um, i do a lot of work in uh assisting like systemically um different disability agencies um, helping doing consults for other BCBAs, um, or actually doing like staff training, um, using, you know, that, I love that 97156 code. I'm just like, yeah, give me that, right? All the trainings, all the trainings. Um, so, uh, getting in there and training staff on, like I had staff the other day at one agency, um, sit down for an hour long training on adult babies and diaper lovers. Um, and then like literally guys, I just want you to know that this has all been foreplay for me to get to that. I think that <laughs> is absolutely fascinating and we will, but okay. Keep, keep going. I love this. Um, so, uh, depending on, on the day, depending on the client and the need, um, 
we might do things like look at, uh, you know, with Zoom, I can do screen share. So we might look at different images online of different sexual positions. Uh, uh, we might look at uh, images online, like when I'm working with minors who search out a lot of porn. Uh, and I've, I've gotten some kids on my caseload who I was like, wow, that's young. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but you know, once once you turn that button on, you're not turning it off. So, uh, so helping uh, my minors find like suitable alternatives so that they have something. What is a suitable alternative, for example? Because isn't it like like a like it's like bordering on like ethical? Right. Well, it becomes a tricky thing. So, um, you know, if the kid is already engaging in looking at porn, um, that's illegal. So, if I can find a legal. Uh, replacement behavior, I'm already doing good. Uh, <laughs> uh, then uh, when we consider that the, you know, these kids, uh, by age 14, almost every kid has seen porn. Uh, most kids are finding it uh, between ages 10 and 12, uh, but by age 14, almost every kid has seen it. Um, and so uh, they're seeing it and they're engaging in solo sexual activity. Uh, and since they're engaging in sexual activity with themselves already to it, they're adding that extra level of stimulation and reinforcement. Mm -hmm. It's going to be impossible to just be like, no, and not have them try and find sneaky ways around it. Right. Um, we try and put the kibosh on it because it's a little kid. Um, and then the little kids. How little has, what's the littlest little you've seen? Seven. Wow. Um, so stealing, uh, you know, the babysitter's, uh, phone and then the babysitter wonders why he's in the bathroom forever and opens the door and he's in there looking at porn, uh, you know, or stealing a tablet from the school music room and going into the, uh, the sensory room so that he can be left alone for a half an hour and just sitting in the sensory room at school, looking at porn and masturbating. Um, so, uh, coming in and offering a suitable alternative is definitely going to be relevant. And so, um, what I, but isn't that challenging to find like a competing it, it is reinforcer so, for that so um i usually utilize um act uh as a way of teaching some impulsivity control some self-control um having some uh some value focus on their behavior so that they can really recognize like why because i'm going to give them the function you know this is why you don't look at this and this is why you should look at other things if you're going to be doing that uh but at the same time, just knowing the function isn't enough. Sometimes we have to really help them um, see that it is going to be a good function for themselves. Tying it to their values, that to their desired outcomes, to what they want in life is, is going to be helpful there. So one of my main things, I'm just like, you realize if your parents get caught not being able to keep you safe, they're going to take away your family's internet and then you get nothing. Do you like Disney Plus? Do you like PBS Kids? Because I think you like those things. Yeah, I need those things. I need those things. My switch won't work without the, without the internet. <laughs> oh yeah, you want to play Animal Crossing? So which do you value more? Uh, you know, like, Matching you law. <laughs> uh, and so, yep, absolutely. Um, I, I teach the kids. Um, you know, your parents are the ones who are going to end up getting in the most trouble for this. Uh, and you know, let's go have a talk with your parents. Um, let's. Tell your parents why why you feel like they should go to jail so that you can look at this. Um, like those kinds of things really start to get the kids like thinking about. Stuff. Little scared uh, straight right there, right? 
just a little bit, but then I'm also offering them a lot of, of reinforcement of the idea that they can prevent all of these problems. Yeah. They are in control. You have so much power, little seven-year-old. Your More behavior than- has so much power. Right? Yeah, you have yeah. so much. Um, and I always quote He-Man, right? I'm always mm-hmm. like, you have the power. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Kids but- take ownership on that. You When they feel that, it's like, all right, like it does work. I've seen it. Yeah. And so then, of course, finding that desired alternative, um, a replacement behavior that can be reinforced. Um, well, who's going to reinforce it? They are right? Nobody else is going to be like, yeah, this is so hot, you know, touch yourself. Because if that's happening, that's way creepy. And we need to get that parent or that other person out of there. Yeah. Uh, so, so this kid has to find the alternative replacement behavior reinforcing. Um, so I work with them on, uh, you know, what is it that you liked when you were looking at porn? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I like I liked the big boobies. Um, you know, they bounced up and down. Um, I liked that I got to see a naked person. I never get to see a naked person. Um, I liked that I knew that I wasn't supposed to be doing it. I liked that my parents were dumb enough to let me. Um, so like different That's reasons. That's really interesting. Trying to get in there, <laughs> you know? Um, and then finding, okay, well, if you want- So you replacement, you're like, all right, don't eat these cookies, right? And then like they eat them secretly and you're like, okay, that's better. Like something that, cause if, if that was the function that they like, like the feeling of like breaking a rule. So if they like the feeling of breaking a rule, um, then actually I start getting in with them about, uh, about how they uh, are actually intertwined in the rules and how the rules help them develop um, and try and help them understand that like, it's okay to break a rule. It, it is okay to break a rule. We all break rules from time to time. But also, that's always a choice. It's going to move you towards one thing and away from another. You're so right. Bring it back. To, yep, yep. Always have my kids kind of looking at that. But um, I actually go through once they've told me like what they found arousing about the porn. So, um, for instance, if if it's I'm looking at something I'm not supposed to. Okay. Well, then coming back and talking with the parents. What's something that you are actually okay with them looking at that you're going to say you're not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no frozen. Frozen is not okay. Right. Uh, You know. uh, So, like the other day, uh, I was watching a a Darth Maul rap. Right. So uh, Darth Maul was rapping, and he was talking about killing Jedi. And it was dark. It was pretty dark for a little kid to be watching, but it was definitely not porn. Uh, (laughs) There we go. Okay. Uh, We could keep shaping the behavior over time, but right now you're not looking at porn. Had another kid who was very specifically, it was the female form. Um, he just very much wanted that. So it was like, okay, well, what female forms are okay for a kid to look at? And so we had to look at uh, uh, the Miller test for determining what is or is not pornography. Um, we had to look at the federal definition of pornography, the state definitions of obscenity, wow. and put together a spank book for this little kid. Um, and so, uh, he now has images of things ranging from, you know, um, Daphne and Scooby-Doo, uh, wearing a bikini, um, uh, Moana, um, you know, like just different, like Disney, Jessica rabbit, scantily clad. Yeah. Um, and it's stuff that he'd be allowed to watch anyway. He, He totally allowed to have that. But now if he feels like going and stealing a device and, and risking, uh, you know, 
getting caught, risking somebody being mad at him, risking losing his Wi-Fi, risking all these other things. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows that if he has that urge, he knows how to recognize it. And he knows to go up to his room where he has that book, shut his door and take some time. So I think that's a huge thing that I, I think would, you know, a lot of people I listening, I think a lot of people, you know, are working clinically and working with um, the population of autism or someone. And a, a huge thing that comes up a lot is masturbating. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just for us to realize that it's like a, it's a natural human behavior, right? It's an unconditioned reinforcer, but I think it comes with a lot of, um, and so I'm sure you see a lot of that also. Um, yes. Well, and, uh, shaping effective solo sex. And I don't like to use the term masturbation. A lot of my clients are literal thinkers and I'm a literal thinker and masturbation. comes. Yeah, from you life. are. Cause we said, what's half of 69. <laughs> and you said, Oh, 34.5. <laughs> That's so me. Um, but yeah, uh, if you look up the, um, the term masturbation, uh, it comes from a Latin root, uh, uh, polluting yourself with your hands um, and desecrating your own body. So um, I don't like to use the term masturbation. I like solo sex. That's what it is. It's sex by yourself. There's no shame, no judgment. Uh, masturbation, very like patriarchal, old school church kind of created that term. Um, whereas eh, it's solo sex. You haven't sex with yourself. Um, but in shaping that, um, I actually developed task analyses. Um, I utilize some discrete trial training to make sure that the clients really understand consent, that they really understand public and private, that they really understand that's uh, a huge one. Their ability to assent. I want my clients to really recognize that even if I, I'm prompting that they, you know, practice this uh, task analysis, if they don't want to, they don't have to. Um, for clients with lower vocal repertoires, I give them cards that they can hold up and it says like, no, stop. I've got one um, that actually looks like they're hitting somebody. It's like an image of someone hitting somebody. And I tell my clients, if I upset you, show me that and I'll take the hit. I'll know that that, that means you hit me. You don't actually have to hit me. Uh, like, you know, okay, like, it's different, different ways of that. Um, but also making absolutely sure if you're going to be shaping solo sex, that is one of the riskiest things you can possibly do in ADA. Please do not do that without reaching out to like uh, Sarah Stein, Frank Cicero, or myself. Um, I, I would say that we're probably the three behavior analysts who, who have done that the most. Um, and we've, we, we communicate with each other. Um, and we have a, we have a good time, um, in terms of like really bouncing off and building the field. Um, and so, we really understand the research. Um, Stein and Cicero have both been published on it as well um, because I've continued being in school and, and, and trying to run my own clinic and all these other things I have not published. Uh, but uh, I have spoken, uh, actually uh, Stein, Cicero, and I were the ethics panel at ABAI in 2019 uh, when it was focused on sexuality. Uh, so definitely uh, a very risky area and not one that people should be jumping into saying, oh, behavior is behavior, it's fine, I got this. Uh, because there's so many possible lines that you can blur in trying to um, shape a sexual behavior through a task analysis. Uh, but really making sure that all of the ethics are being followed. 
And part of that is that you know I, I have a membership with ASECT, um, and I adhere to their their code of ethics as well. And that's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Uh, so you know they have ethics specific to sexual instruction, and so. I'm like, okay, I'm going to adhere to that on top of the ABA ethical code and make absolutely sure that I'm addressing this as ethically as possible. Um, Shrek and Miller uh, 2012, um, I believe it was 2012, uh, Behaving Ethically in a World of Fads, published in uh, uh, Behavioral Interventions. Uh, really, really cool article on how to take outside literature and outside interventions and apply them within an ABA framework um, and doing so ethically. Um, so definitely, uh, a big part of my job, um, has been, uh, the shaping of solo sex, uh, for clients. Sometimes it's just helping them with, you know, remembering to do it in their room. Sometimes I think that's like a lot of it also kind of just like maybe like examples and non-examples of appropriate places to do this as opposed to, cause I mean, if it's, you know, someone who is doing this just like, Hey, this is an appropriate place. This isn't an appropriate place. This so, is. Yeah. Well, I like, I, I hate using the terms. Like I, I don't use appropriate, inappropriate or normal unless I'm using normal in a positive way, like normalizing things. Uh, okay. So uh, appropriate and inappropriate are really tricky because if we say, okay, it's inappropriate to have solo sex in your living room because it's a public area of the home. Um, is it, is that inappropriate? I mean, maybe in certain contexts, if someone else is home and they're not your partner, if they are home and they're your partner and they're okay with it, is it okay? Um, if, uh, if it's in an individualized supported living home for somebody with intellectual disabilities, uh, do we allow that out in the living room and have staff leave the living room because it's their living room and they're an adult and they can do that just like the rest of us can? Staff certainly isn't going to feel that way when we first go in. Uh, so I'm starting to, to kind of work with, with what is what does appropriate mean? You know, we talked earlier about tax and what, what things mean. There are so many contexts that make behavior appropriate in one area and inappropriate in another that if we use appropriate and inappropriate as labels, then that label might follow into the wrong context. And then you don't have access to a behavior that is contextually totally fine. It's socially valid. Uh, so we really want to watch that appropriate versus inappropriate. I ask, is it risky? <laughs> right? like, what are the risks? What could be risky about that? Uh, it, in uh, defining public and private, you know, public is if people can see or hear or maybe could see or hear. Um, but is it still public uh, if the only other person who can see or hear is your partner and you're both consenting to things? Then that changes the definition of public. So, like, we really have to go in. Operational definitions are hard here. They are. They're hard. And, and again, when we have one, if we believe that as a truth and it follows us across context because... Uh, you know, we're overgeneralizing that truth, um, then that's that's an issue. Uh, and one of the things to recognize is undergeneralizing or overgeneralizing tend to happen a lot when somebody has autism or an intellectual disability. Uh, people become very rule-governed. Um, and so it's kind of like, I'm only allowed to do it this exact way. 
Um, and so again, we get back into what is sex, <laughs> but you know, it's a journey. It's interesting. Cause I realize even, you know, like I feel like I'm accepting to different things, but even in my head, I've like, we kind of, we just create these, these rules. Like to me, I'm like, okay, appropriate, inappropriate. Cause I'm trying to like, I think a lot of us are just naturally trying to classify things for our own Mm-hmm. But it's it's so like when you talk about this, I'm realizing how important it is that we, you know, I don't know if it's like we have like a loose understanding of these things or just in, like, I mean, even I remember having a client who the parents were like, all right, she really needs to work on like her hygiene skills. Like we want her to like be cleaner. We want her to shave her legs. Like it's like whatever it is. And then. I was like, okay, that's something we work on with individuals, right? Like brushing your teeth, doing this. And then as it it got, you know, like the more I was working with her, I found out that she had an Instagram account that she, you know, let's say her name was Lucy, but on her Instagram account, she was Edward or something, right? So it was like, and and then it started like coming out to me like, wait, maybe this individual is not, you know, identifying as like female. And here I am telling her to shave her legs. And, or I might be using words wrong here and I apologize, but it was just this idea of, you know, to me, it was like, oh, hygiene, doing these things. And because, and I feel like in a lot of people's brain, probably like we're always trying to categorize these different things. And it, there, there is more, it's a more fluid concept when it comes to these different things with sexuality and as you said earlier, a lot of the time it's, you know, it helps someone like understand like, oh, there's other things out there. Like maybe the way I'm feeling is not necessarily wrong. But then it also, again, that double-edged sword that like I'm telling this girl to shave her legs. And eventually I was like, this Instagram is more than just her like creating this guy's account to like catfish people. It was like, this is what she felt. And at, at that point, I might ask, you know, um, would you want me to refer to you uh, by he, him pronouns? Um, and seeing how they respond to that, you know, um, would you want to try, uh, just for a couple of sessions, I'll refer to you as he, him and see what that, what that does for you. Um, do you feel better about it? Neutral, worse? Um, if you want me to stop at any point and change the pronouns, we can try the hit sign. Right. So, uh, yeah, checking in and seeing what someone's pronouns are can be really affirming and really empowering, especially if their parents are pushing, again, a heteronormative kind of an agenda, uh, because, you know, they want to do right by their parents. They want their parents to be happy, um, but at the same time, they want to be their best and authentic selves. Um, And having somebody who comes in, an outside observer, who comes in and pushes the parents' agenda, uh, that can be really hard for them. But if somebody comes in and recognizes that maybe the parent's agenda isn't biting with the reality that that client is facing, then that can be an incredibly life-altering and and really like shifting the course of the next several years of their life. Um, Can really, we have the ability, especially because we oftentimes work in the homes and a lot of other therapists do not. Yeah. We have a lot of ability to help these individuals more, I think, than a lot of other types of therapists. Uh, 
I would say, you know, what drew me to marriage and family therapy is because, again, uh, you work with the whole family and you do stuff sometimes in their homes. Uh, or if they come to the office, you have the whole freaking family come and then they recreate what they would do at home and you just kind of let them go. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to step in and I'm going to be a member of your family right now and I'm going to start acting like you are. Uh, just the crazy. Oh, and that's always fun. Uh, <laughs> when people start seeing how they're acting because you start doing it too. Oh my That's God. That's scary. I don't want anyone to ever do that about me. Ever. Oh, I have so much fun doing that with clients. I'm going to do that. It's, it's really empowering because then they, they're like, don't do that. That's horrible. You shouldn't do that. Well, I only learned it from you. Uh-huh. What? <laughs> Defense, guard up, <laughs> deflect. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So this podcast is not over, guys. I know we've hit... Um, probably your attention span point, even though if we, I know if we got into the next part, everyone would be like, ah, fetishes. So we are not done. Um, I think for today's episode, we're at a good stopping point, but we had to stop this for a second and be ask Nicholas, like, Hey, can we do a 69.5 or 69.1? I don't know. 69 and a half. Um, because I think there's so many things that I, first of all, I want to ask personally, because I am just fascinated. Uh, If you guys tune in, we'll be talking about fetishes. We'll be talking about um, what is it called? The diaper adult babies, diaper lovers. Um, I'd like to also spend some time maybe talking about puppy play. Um, I've, Uh, put together some really neat uh, research around puppy play and its potential for uh, mental health dynamics. Uh, I think it could also be kind of cool to talk about um, how we can incorporate uh, kink cultural competency um, into ABA and also into parent trainings because uh, a lot of times kinks start showing up when we're teenagers. Um, and so if a parent doesn't recognize, um, that maybe it's just a kink, they might be really, really freaked out by something, um, that isn't really that harmful. Um, they might add a lot of shame. Um, they might play into it. There are some times where, uh, where somebody has a kink, um, that involves like power dynamics or things like that. And if the parents are the only ones involved in their lives and don't recognize that this is their kink, they can get wrapped up into it. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I would like to address surrounding kinks and cultural competency. Well, I think you're going to have to tune in. Yeah, like literally I'd like, I'm not, I'm going to build that MO because I, I want to ask right now what this puppy play is, but we're going to leave it for next episode to get you guys hot and bothered to tune in next week. All right, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this is, my brain's exploding and I've had to work very hard to not just ask 5 million questions in between every single statement you said. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, this was, you know, I think it was great introduction of getting to know who you are, what you do, what this role looks like. But next episode, we're going to get down and dirty and talk all things kinky fetish puppy play, you know, any of these things. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me um, and for having a unique podcast. Uh, I think that something that we need more of in the ABA world uh, is connecting on a human level. Uh, you know, I, I went to certify as a sex therapist and was actually denied on the grounds that I was a behavior analyst, even though I had met all education and supervision requirements, the certifying body said behavior analysts don't understand humans. Um, and since you don't understand humans or, or the in-depth parts of the human experience, we don't feel right certifying you. Um, so I'm allowed to reapply after I have my LMFT, which will be next uh, November. Um, so I'm a little, little ways out from my LMFT. Um, but just recognizing that like, even the field of sex therapy said, nope, you've met every requirement, but you're a behavior analyst. And I feel like Things well, like I think that. we have a bad rap for being like dicks, assholes <laughs> in terms of like, oh, they only see it this one way. But I think it's like so important to open our eyes to understand that, like, you know, we are working with complex individuals. And media, media is the way to connect with the world. And so having things like this, so, so important. So thank you. Thank you. You rock. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Tune in next week. You don't want to miss it. You know where to find us. Find us online, behaviorbitches.com, Instagram, Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook, Behavior Bitches Podcast. And as freaking always, love you. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 